Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And our text for this morning will be 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. And it is a privilege for me and my family to be here this morning. I've been blessed by this church in a number of ways that you probably don't know. Uh, but I want to tell you, to tell you how thankful I am for you and to be here. I've been blessed by being able to come to the pastor's fraternal that's hosted here at the church. Uh, I was blessed to worship here with my family while I was on sabbatical last year. And I've been blessed by Pastor Jim as he has become a friend and a mentor to me. And so I was very thankful uh, at when he asked me to come and to fill in for him here in the pulpit, and I'm uh, just very blessed to be here. I hope that you are in Second Corinthians chapter 4. I'm going to read the text and pray, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is our great joy and privilege to be gathered here today to worship you. And Lord, I pray now, in the time in which the word of God is preached, that you would help me, the preacher, to pray with humility and to preach Christ and not myself, as Paul states here in the text. I pray for the hearers, that the hearers today would seek to be doers of the word and not hearers only. I pray for those who are here who are not believers, in whom the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ has not shone in their hearts. And I pray that through the preaching of the word, you by your spirit would shine in their hearts that they might believe. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text for this morning contains within it two themes which are fundamental to the Christian life, and that is grace and glory. Paul's main argument in our text is that the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is that which we are to preach and that which we are to behold if we truly are Christians. But beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is not something that we have the innate ability to do ourselves. And in fact, apart from God graciously enabling us to behold his glory in the face of Jesus Christ, we are blind. We are ignorant of the gospel and of the true knowledge of who Jesus Christ is as the Son of God incarnate who came into the world to save sinners. Our text sits within a larger argument that Paul is making in the book of 2 Corinthians in which he is defending his ministry to this Corinthian church that has had some difficulties and has had some strife amongst themselves and some strife with Paul, who is the one who originally preached the gospel to them. You may be aware of the so-called super apostles in the book of 2 Corinthians that Paul was contending against in this letter. These were men who looked strong in the eyes of 
the world and their strength was appealing to the Corinthian Christians. In contrast, Paul admits that he himself is a weak man. He's a man who's been beaten down by the world. He has a thorn in his side and he faces persecutions at every turn. And in contrast, these super apostles look like men who do not have hardship and are not beaten down by the world in the way that Paul seems to be. So in response to these super apostles, Paul made clear what a true minister of the new covenant looks like. Ministers of the new covenant do not preach themselves. They do not preach their own strength. Instead, ministers of the new covenant take pains to avoid preaching themselves and to clearly set before all the glory of God in Christ Jesus. And this brings us to our text for this morning, starting in verse 3. In these verses, Paul is anticipating an objection that the Corinthians might have to what he's saying. Their objection might be, Paul, if you are so good at clearly setting before all the glory of God in Jesus Christ and preaching his gospel, then why are there so many who have not believed? Why are there so many who have not seen this glory which you preach? Paul's response comes in verses 3 and 4 of our text, and he says their inability to see the glory of God in Christ is not because the message has not been proclaimed clearly enough. It's because they themselves have been blinded in their own hearts. Those who are perishing can't see the truth because Satan has blinded their eyes. And we know from other texts of scripture that Satan can do nothing apart from God's decree enabling him to do it. We know that particularly from Job chapter 1. But they are indeed allowed by God to be blinded by Satan. And as a result, they are unable to behold the glory of God in Christ Jesus. Paul continues his defense of his ministry in verse 5, asserting that it is not he who he preaches, it is not himself that he preaches, and he reiterates that he doesn't do this for his own sake. He does it for the sake of the Corinthians. He is their servant seeking to bring to them the gospel and not to prop himself up as these super apostles do. Now it's verse 6 of our text that I specifically want to focus on in my exposition this morning. And it is here in this text that Paul so clearly brings together the two concepts of grace and glory. Those who can behold the glory of God do not do so by their own will. It is God who has shown in their hearts in order to enable them to be able to see. Prior to God shining in their hearts, as I've already said, they are blind. They are in the category of those whom Paul describes in verse 4. But when God shines into our hearts... He gives us light that enables to see, and what we see is glory, the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And so the central doctrine that I want to preach from this text this morning is this. Knowing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is of the essence of the Christian life from beginning to end. Knowing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is of the essence, it is central to the Christian life from beginning to end. And there's three points that I'm going to expound in making and proving this doctrine. It is, what is the glory of God, first? Second, how is the glory of God displayed in the face of Jesus Christ? And third, what is it to know the glory of God 
in the face of Jesus Christ. And then I'll close with a few points of application. The first question is, what is the glory of God? When we consider God's glory, we have to distinguish between God's glory in himself on the one hand and God's glory put on display on the other hand. So considering first his glory in himself, this is not something that can increase or decrease. God's glory in himself is unchanging because God himself is unchanging. All of the perfections that describe who he is, his justice, his power, his holiness, his goodness, his love, these are all perfections that cannot increase or decrease. He is not becoming more holy or more just. He simply is holy and just eternally and unchangeably in himself. We can think of this like the sun, which remains as bright as it is in itself, even when it's dark on our side of the world. We could walk into our house in the middle of the day and close our curtains so that no light was able to get in, and that would not make the sun in itself any less bright than it is. This is like God in himself and his glory. Even if there's nobody or nothing that has been created to see that glory, God in himself is as glorious as he always has been and always will be. But the manifestation of his glory outside of himself, this is something that does increase. God displays his glory outside of himself in his work of creation and providence and in his work of redemption. Going back to the analogy of the sun, the sun in itself is so hot and so bright that it is unapproachable for human beings. If we were to get too close of it, to it, we would be incinerated. And this is like the glory of God in himself. In himself, he dwells in unapproachable light. A created being cannot approach the glory of God in himself without being killed. This is what God tells Moses in Exodus 33, verse 20. He says to him, No man shall see me and live. But when God creates, he displays his glory outside of himself. And like the rays of the sun that enable us to see without being consumed by the sun itself, God's works of creation and providence and his work of redemption, these display his glory in a way that can be experienced by us as creatures without our being consumed. We can know God and his perfections in a creaturely way without being consumed because God has chosen to reveal his glory outside of himself in a way that is accommodated to us as weak and finite human beings. And so when the scriptures talk about giving glory to God or the whole earth being full of the glory of God, it does not mean that we as creatures are somehow doing something towards God that is increasing his glory in himself. We can't make him change. We can't make him more holy. We can't make him in himself more glorious by anything that we do. When it talks about giving glory to God or the whole earth being full of his glory, it refers to the manifestation of his glory outside of himself. As the brightness of the sun in itself is displayed more fully when its rays reflect more brightly on the earth, so also God's glory outside of himself is displayed as it increases in his creation, giving glory back to him. So that's the first question. What is the glory of God? But then we have to move to ask, how is the glory of God displayed in the face of Jesus Christ, as Paul talks about in our text for this morning? 
It's important first to explain the significance of the word face. In scripture, we are instructed to seek God's face. David writes in Psalm 27, 8, You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. The well-known prayer of Solomon in 2 Corinthians seven fourteen also refers to seeking the face of God, where he says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. <clears throat> now, if you're familiar with the very simple catechism for boys and girls, there's a question in there that says, who is God? And the answer is, God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. So we're told to seek God's face, and yet he does not have a body, so how can he have a face? And so what we must understand from this is that this is God accommodating himself to us and explaining things in a way that we can understand as creatures. He does not have a face himself because he doesn't have a body, but he has told us to seek his face so that we might understand what it means by metaphor or by analogy to seek him and his presence. So we can understand more fully what is meant in scripture by seeking the face of God if we consider what faces represent in human relationships. Faces are the most fundamental way that we identify one another as humans. Now there are all kinds of ways through technology, DNA, fingerprints, that somebody can be identified, but those are very impersonal. We don't use those in personal relationships with, with one another on a daily basis. We recognize one another, we relate to one another through faces. We know that the experience of communicating with someone via text or email or even by the phone using our voices, it does not come close to communicating all of the meaning that can be communicated in face-to-face -face communication. There are all kinds of things that you lose through mere communication by word or by voice. But when you can see someone's face, when you're in their presence, you gain a fuller experience of the meaning of their words and of who they are as a person. So the face is how we personally identify one another. It's a very significant way that we communicate with one another. But we must also acknowledge that a person's face is not synonymous with who they are. If a husband has been away from his, life for, his wife for a long period of time, and he sends her a note that says, I can't wait to see your face, he doesn't literally mean that the thing that he is most excited about is seeing her face, although that's part of it. What he means by that is that he wants to be in her presence. Her face is representative of who she is and his desire to be with her. The face is not an end in itself, it's a means to the end of knowing and experiencing the person. And so when the scriptures instruct us to seek the face of God, it means that we are to seek his presence, which is the manifestation of his glory outside of himself. And we do this through the means that he's given us. We can't have an immediate experience of his glory without being put to death, without dying, as he says to Moses in Exodus 33. But we can experience his glory as it is reflected in his revelation, most centrally in his word which he has given us. We seek God's face through his revelation of himself to us, just like we experience the sun through its rays reflecting upon us and upon the world around us. But our text says that it is the face of Jesus Christ in which the glory of God is reflected or revealed. 
This complicates things a little bit because, as I said a moment ago, we know that the divine nature does not have a body and therefore does not have a face. But Jesus Christ has a divine nature and a human nature. And so in his human nature, he really does have a face. So is this Paul telling us that the way that we seek God's face is through an encounter with the physical face of Jesus Christ and his human nature? Does this mean that we ought to seek God through making pictures of Jesus that are reflective of our perception of how glorious he is? I don't believe that's what Paul is saying, and I think to do that would actually be completely contrary to what Paul intends here about the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul clearly here does not mean that God's glory is displayed most centrally in the physical face of Jesus in his human nature. We know that because there were numerous people who saw Jesus' physical face while he was here on the earth and saw no glory in it whatsoever. There was Herod, there was Pontius Pilate, there was the Sanhedrin. These were people who had encounters with Jesus in his bodily form, in his human nature. And they had nothing but disdain or complete indifference for him. They saw no glory in that physical face. So this doesn't mean that if you've merely seen the physical face of Jesus Christ and his human nature that you've seen the glory of God. Instead, what this means is that the glory of God is reflected in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When Paul refers to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ here, he asserts that in the person and work of the Son of God incarnate, the glory of God is most fully and clearly displayed. Those of us who have never seen the physical face of Jesus Christ in his human nature can nonetheless have a clear and full experience of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ because we have been enabled by faith to know, believe, and trust in his person and in his work. And so in the person and work of Christ, God in his abundant mercy condescends to reveal himself savingly to humanity. Any revelation of God to humanity is condescension on his part. It's mercy on his part. He did not have to do it. He chooses to reveal himself, first of all, through his work of creation and through the light of nature and man, but these things cannot save, as we know. It is in the person and work of Jesus Christ that he manifests himself and his glory in a manner through the, the power through which people can be saved from the wrath and punishment for sin. The person and work of Jesus Christ is the focal point of all of the rays of the sunlight of God's glory revealed to humanity. Jesus himself teaches this truth in John 14, verses 6 through 9, in a dialogue with his disciples prior to his going to the cross. We read there in John 14, verses 6 through 9, Jesus said to him, that being Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And the disciples still don't get it, so Philip asks, Lord, show us, Father, and show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? The Father is unseen with physical eyes, but his glory is displayed in the person and work of his Son. 
And so, in the person and work of the Son, the Father is both seen and known. We see this truth also taught in Colossians 1.15 by Paul. He says, He, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible in the divine nature, and yet it is through the Son of God incarnate that his glory is revealed. We see it again in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This isn't Paul saying that the fullness of the divine nature can somehow be contained in the body of Christ's human nature. The divine nature is incomprehensible in itself. It is infinite in itself. It cannot be contained within something that has been created. And so what Paul is saying here is that the fullness of what man can know of the glory of God revealed is revealed in Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 1, chapter 3, which I know Pastor Jim has been preaching through. I'm not sure if he's still in it now. Hebrews 1, chapter three, or Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You can know the glory of God in creation and providence. Any created being, any person can know that. But if you want to know the glory of God in the fullness of what man can know, if you want to know the glory of God savingly, you look at the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. His glory is most fully revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. So the third question that I want to ask is this. What is it to know the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? There are three things that I want to point out about the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The first is this. It's a knowledge that's revealed by grace. Going back to those two concepts of grace and glory, this knowledge of what is glorious in Christ is only revealed by grace. There were many people, as I said, who saw Jesus Christ in his human nature while he was here on earth. There are many people who hear the preaching of the word week in and week out, perhaps some in this congregation here today, who have not, by faith, perceived the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's because it's a knowledge that's only revealed by grace. God has to do a work within us by his grace to enable us to see with eyes of faith this glory, to really know it in a way that is saving This knowledge has to be poured into our hearts by the Spirit of God. God himself has to draw back the curtains on our souls so that the light can shine in. And God uses the means of the preaching of the word and the reading of the word, but his Spirit has to make these means effectual so that we can know not just factually who Jesus is, so that we can know not just factually about his person and his work, but that we can know him savingly. So that we can have an experiential knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Of the Son of God who came into the world to save sinners. So it's a knowledge revealed by grace. Second, it's a knowledge that is begun by faith and completed by sight. This knowledge is synonymous with faith. Elsewhere in scripture we see it being described this way. John, Jesus says to Thomas in John chapter 20 verse 29... Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus is referring there to people who do not have experiential knowledge of the human nature of Jesus Christ in physical form, but nonetheless 
have believed and been saved and have come to know that he is the Son of God incarnate, come into the world to save sinners. There are many of us here today, all of us, in fact, who have not seen the physical body of Jesus Christ resurrected like Thomas had the advantage of doing. And yet, we have faith that he has been raised from the dead for our justification. Beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ by faith is the only way to experience his glory savingly this side of eternity. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. But the scriptures also teach us that this faith that we have in the here and now is going to be consummated by sight in glory. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The faith by which we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in the here and now will in eternity be consummated and replaced by sight. This is what theologians refer to as the beatific vision. We don't know exactly what this will be like because none of us have gone there and seen it and come back. Some suggest that sight here is metaphorical and that it simply indicates not just physical sight with one's eyes, but a full experience in one's intellect and affections and will of the glory of God that cannot be perceived and experienced in our sinful state, but that we will experience in our sinless state there in glory. Others, such as the theologian John Owen, suggest that it must include some combination of physical sight of the glorified Lord, as well as our full and complete mental comprehension and enjoyment in our affections of all of his glory. And if you want to read what is probably the most edifying treatment of this concept, I suggest his book, Meditations and Discourses on the Glory of Christ. But getting into those waters is too deep for me to be able to explain clearly. So what I will simply say is that the sight that we will experience in glory far surpasses and consummates what we experience by faith in the here and now. And so when you've been encouraged by times when you're suffering or being afflicted, and the little faith that you have in Jesus Christ, that little seed that's there in the midst of your suffering, when you're encouraged by that, you can be reminded that that will be replaced by something even more glorious in eternity. How wonderful it is for us to hold on to that in the midst of our suffering and affliction. So it is a knowledge that is begun by faith and consummated by sight. And third, it's a knowledge that conforms. It's a knowledge that conforms. To know the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ increasingly is a knowledge that conforms. Let me explain what I mean by that. The theologian G.K. Beale wrote a well-known book, and the title itself is very informative. It's titled, We Become What We Worship. And his explanation of that in the book is referring to texts which talk about people becoming like the idols that they worship. We could look at the contrary side of that, and we could say, we become what we behold. And so, if we are beholding Christ and his glory, we will become like him. That is how it was designed. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
And so as we come to know increasingly and to behold increasingly and to experience increasingly the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, more and more by faith in the here and now, we are conformed into that same glorious image. The simple truth is that if you want to be like Christ, you must behold Christ in all of his glory. So as I conclude this morning, there's three uses or three points of application that I'd like to give you. The first is a use of comfort. I encourage you this morning, be thankful that God has condescended to reveal his glory in Christ. As I said earlier, this is not something that God had to do. His revelation of himself is not necessary for him. He would have continued to exist in all of his glory had he never created. And yet in his mercy and for in his divine, infinite wisdom, he chose to create an eternity past, which is the only reason why we exist. And despite our sin, he freely chose in eternity past to reveal his glory through his son so that sinners might be saved. He has given us his word, and in his word he has revealed the glory of his son who became incarnate to save sinners. We could take it even a step further than that, that not only did he condescend to reveal himself to us, but we in our place and time have our own physical copies of the Bible in numerous different faithful translations. We in our time can sit under the preaching of the word week in and week out, And have the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ proclaimed to us. Be thankful that God has condescended to reveal his glory in Christ. Be thankful that you were born in a place and time by God's grace where you could hear the gospel and read the word. And by his spirit being able to believe on him and be saved. And in your thankfulness, filled with gratitude to him for what he has done for you. Seek to obey him. Pursue him through the means that he has provided, not in such a way that you might prove your worth to him. Because you can't do that, because we're not worthy in and of ourselves. But in such a way that you show your gratitude for him, to him for what he has done for you in Christ and enabling you to see his glory revealed. Be comforted. The second, ask yourself, Has God poured the knowledge of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ into your heart? We know that in any congregation, there is the strong likelihood that there are one or more people, though all might be professing believers, that there are one or more people who are there who likely have not been saved and have not had this light shine into their souls. This is why we preach the gospel week in and week out, even as Christians are gathered together for worship. And so perhaps you have never truly beheld the glory of Christ by faith. Maybe you're a child. Maybe, maybe you've been in church your entire life and you've heard this preached, but you haven't beheld his glory. That light has not shone into your soul. And I don't say this to cast doubt on whether or not you've had a true experience of salvation. I say this so that you might examine yourself to see Is that light there? Do I see his glory? Has he given me faith to behold how glorious Jesus is? 
Do I know not just facts about the person and work of Christ, but do I see him as glorious? And even if it's just a little seed of faith within me, is, that, is there a seed of faith there that wants to cling to him as my only hope, as the only rock on which I can stand, as the only anchor that can tether me to eternity and to eternal life rather than destruction? And I urge you, plead with him. If this does not describe you, if you do not have faith in Christ, plead with him that he might give you the ability by his grace to see the glory of Christ and to look upon him in faith and be saved. The final use or point of application is this. Christian, look at Christ more than you look at your sin. Let me explain what I mean by that because we obviously must look at our sin. We have to be humbled for our sin in breaking God's law in order to truly understand and appreciate the glory of God's gospel displayed in Jesus Christ. But I fear that too many Christians get caught up in navel-gazing over their own sin. And when we spend too much time looking at our own sin and not enough time looking at Jesus Christ and beholding his glory and the gospel of grace displayed in him and what he has done, we will end up finding no comfort. We will end up in a place of despair on the one hand, or on the other hand, we'll be so caught up in navel-gazing over our own sin that we begin to look at our own work of putting our sin to death and trust in that, such that when we have a little bit of success and no longer sinning in the ways that we once did, we begin to trust in that as opposed to trusting in Jesus Christ and him and him alone. We must rest not in our own works of putting our sin to death, but in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ alone. This is why Robert Murray McShane wrote to a friend saying this, For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Our remaining sin contains depths unfathomable to us. We could spend the rest of our lives looking at our own sin, and we would never perceive the depths of it. God knows the depths of our sin, and he is the only one who truly does. But the glorious love of God for us in Christ is deeper still even than the depths of our own sinfulness. And so when you have contemplated the depth of your own sin, make sure that you contemplate even more the glory of our Savior. And in doing so, you, by his grace, will be brought more and more to rest in him and to be conformed into his image on your way to glory and eternal life with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your glorious revelation of yourself to us in your son, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh to save sinners. And I pray again this morning for those who may be here who do not believe, who have not experienced this light shining into their souls to see the glory of God in Christ. And I pray that you would do a work of grace within them. I pray for the children who are gathered here today, for my children, for the children who are children of the members of this church. I pray, Lord, that you would answer the prayers of their parents and the prayers of the elders of this church, that they would come to faith and believe in Jesus Christ and be on their way to glory. Lord, I pray for anyone here who may be discouraged, who may be doubting their salvation.
I pray that you would help them by your grace to cling to the only hope that they have, which is in Christ Jesus. Help them to see and behold his glory more fully leaving now than they did coming in this morning. And Lord, I pray for all of us here who are Christians. Help us not to get caught up in merely looking at our own sin without looking to Christ, but help us to take our sins to Christ and be comforted and take rest in his having obeyed on our behalf and taken the wrath for our sin. And help us to live obediently out of gratitude to you for what you have done for us in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.